when things get beastly. When being a bad guy doesn't make you a bad guy. When the... Hey, 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 I can see what you're doing over there. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Lennon, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Astron. And I'm Ryu. And this is the 193rd entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, December 18th, and released Wednesday, December 22nd, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ryu, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's adventurers pack, Astron gets to the beastly heart of a new resource. Next, we check out some D&D news as we uncover the latest blog from the D&D studio covering Errata. After that, we take a short rest and head into the Gnomish Workshop to try and come to our senses before finally heading over to the Scrying Pool to see what you have to say. And that takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurous bags. Do you always carry this much in your bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid roll for! So, the subject of animal companions and pets and creatures following the party around is a fairly common and contentious one, particularly with 5th edition D&D. Anyone that's been following the development of the edition from the beginning knows that there was much to do and wailing and gnashing of teeth around the Beastmaster subclass of the Ranger, and it seems like a lot of different independent creators have tried to come up with solutions or modifications to deal with the supposed gap that the Beastmaster Ranger's default profile has left. So today we're going to cover one of the more recent attempts at that, although I will say this isn't just a homebrewed Beastmaster Ranger done right, so to speak. Uh, This is actually an attempt at an entirely separate class and a somewhat modified mechanic both at a gameplay level and a roleplay level. So Beastheart and Monstrous Companions is a resource that is produced by MCDM. Uh, For those of you who don't recognize that, it is the... I'll call it a publishing company or publishing effort that was created mostly by Matt Colville uh, on the staff. He also has James Intricasso, who those of you who follow the third party publication scene for D&D in 5th edition will be very familiar with his name. He has also produced some content for some of the official published Wizards of the Coast modules for 5th edition. And... They are most commonly known at the moment for producing the Arcadia Gaming Magazine. This is a 48-page or so resource, depending on font sizes and formats, that does two things. Uh, First of all, it produces a new class and subclasses called the Beast Heart that can be used for 5th edition. And it also covers a new mechanic of using wild creatures as companions. Now the premise here is not that these creatures are pets. 
the idea is that these are creatures with independent motivations and actions that are not sapient, but they have decided to attach themselves to one member of the party and work with them and assist them within a certain amount of tolerance. So it is not like the character has a trained pet of whatever this is. It is more like a mutually beneficial arrangement, but the creature is still supposed to be very wild and untamed. Uh, the closest real-world example I can think of this is what I read once but have no experience in, but if you talk to anyone who's into falconry, they will tell you that the birds of prey that they use for falconry are never pets. They always remain wild animals, and even if they are trained to do certain things like attack and retrieve, there is, at any given point, the possibility that they will be hostile to their supposed owners or that they will decide, you know what, I'm good with this and just fly off and never return. That's the sort of dynamic they're trying to emulate here. So the resource provides 15 companion stat blocks that are attached to creatures out of the monster manual. So things like owl bears, boulettes, basilisks even. Uh, and to keep with the sort of wild animal feel to this, there are several new mechanics that they introduce. The first one is right in the stat block, and it's called Signature Attacks. Basically, for all of the creature stat blocks, they highlight one that is nominated as the creature's signature attack, which applies to some of the other mechanics. The next one is Ferocity. Ferocity is... I would equate it, for those of you who are familiar with the Final Fantasy video games, to sort of a limit break meter. Uh, essentially, depending on certain activities happening in combat, mostly centered around how many enemies are in proximity to the creature, it will gain a certain number of what are called ferocity points. The ferocity points can then be spent on a variety of actions and reactions that the creature is capable of, similar to legendary actions for large boss-type monsters. The other thing, again, tying in with these creatures remaining wild animals, is that if you reach a certain threshold of ferocity points without spending them, the creature will go into a rampage and essentially begin acting on their own without any real ability for the character to control it. That character, by the way, is nominated as the caretaker, and there are a few different descriptions of what the beast and caretaker relationship is like, what can cause it to dissolve, and what can cause the creature to choose a new caretaker within the context of the group. The other thing that should be mentioned is included in the stat blocks are the ability to have a companion that is a gelatinous cube or a mimic. So some of the companions are more sensible mundane creatures and then you have, you know, the companion mimic, which one of the abilities it has is it can spontaneously form clothing over the caretaker character if that is a thing that either wants to happen. Uh, the other thing that's included is the Beast Heart class. There are a lot of new things in that class, but Almost all of them are tied directly into the mechanics around the 
companion monsters and caring for them using the ferocity and so forth. So I won't go into all the details because it would require explaining all the details of the mechanics. But basically the class has several subclasses related to how you want to interact with the monstrous companion, whether you want to focus on hunting or whether you want to sort of charge with the creature into the midst of a large battle. Uh, but those are included for use with the companions. Uh, there are a few magic items included in the resource. Again, all of them are directly related to the companion mechanic. So nothing much to do with them if you aren't using that gameplay. And also they include at the end of the resource a short story that gives sort of a setting or a suggestion of what a roleplay encounter might look like where a party acquires a companion that then joins them and starts off on the adventure. So that's all the neat stuff and the, the basics of it. A few downsides to this. For the most part, it's a really good resource. These are not novices at creating 5th edition content. Everyone involved has done it before. It's full of good art. The mechanics are fairly good. There is a little bit of the problem that I have with Wizards of the Coast official resources in 5th edition, which there are some mechanics where they go, hey, this is something that can happen that isn't necessarily great for the players. The DM gets to make the call on when this happens and what triggers it. Uh, for example, one of the biggest ones is the monster can choose to switch which character they consider to be the caretaker and which one they sort of follow or become attached to, depending on how the caretaker treats the creature. And essentially all of those details are left up to the DM. It's their call on whether the creature is being treated appropriately, whether it's being pushed too far, etc. I consider that to be a little bit of a cop-out because obviously taking someone's creature companion away is probably going to ruffle some feathers, either figuratively or literally, and I was sort of annoyed that that was left entirely up to the DM. The other thing that's possibly only a temporary downside, but other than the 15 companion stat blocks listed in the resource, there are only two sources of new ones, which they list as their subreddit or their discord, that they being MCDM. And those will all be homebrewed, most of them created by fans rather than official content produced by the creators. The next sources for those are supposed to be some appearing in later editions of the Arcadia magazine, as well as a monster tome that MCDM is supposed to be publishing sometime later on. So there are suggestions on how to create a companion monster using a stat block out of the monster manual, but the instructions are very loose and it would require a certain amount of heavy lifting and probably play testing to make sure that any homebrewed animal companion fits with the theme. So that was a little disappointing. Also, personally, I had difficulty really nailing down what separates these creatures from just pets. Uh, they, like I said, they make a big deal in the description and some of the mechanics around 
these are not pets. They are still wild animals. They are still, you know, brimming with barely controlled forces of nature. However, in my opinion, there aren't really enough mechanics to back that up. It's entirely a roleplay situation for the most part, combined with the DM making calls. And if you've got a DM who isn't comfortable with direct confrontation or either the players of the DM don't really lean into it too much, I can very much see this becoming a this is just an owl bear pet or this is just a gelatinous cute pet and you sort of lose the wild animal sense of it. That said, the cons I picked out are not deal breakers by any means and I think the rules for the animal companions make it much more interesting than just base pets or to a certain extent even the uh, newer suggestions for animal companions that have come out for rangers recently. So if you're looking for something different uh, to include an animal companion in with your party, this is definitely something to check out. Dragon Whirling Companion, yes! <laughs> so how, how quickly are you going to introduce that into your campaigns, Ryu? Um, yes. <laughs> Excellent. I, I've already bought this, so... <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Yeah, the only thing that I wasn't too keen... Like you said, this is a very well-produced resource. They obviously all know what they're doing. They are longtime veterans of the industry. So this is about as on par as anything quality-wise that you're officially going to get from Wizards of the Coast. The only thing that I really sort of had a, a, any sort of difficulty with is the actual class of the Beast Heart. I was struggling to sort of find its role in the party, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean... As far as I could tell, like I said, the Beast Heart is really just there to be the companion's caretaker. I mean, all of their abilities and almost all of their mechanics are centered around it is less likely that this wild animal following the party around is going to turn on them or get lost or wander off. Right. For the most part, it's, it's sort of a mix between... Ranger and a barbarian. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't do it, it doesn't do either thing that those classes do better. Yeah, it's like I said, I can't really comment on much of it because all of its abilities are tied into the companion mechanics. Like Right. And if for some reason them. you ended up without a companion, this really has no place as far as I can see. Yeah, it's a uh, without the companion, it's a middlingly effective skirmisher essentially yeah. yeah but that aside i do like the ferocity system i feel that something like this Me should too. have been included in an official release somewhere somehow this this is what takes it to me from just standard monster manual things that you can use as pets or even using the companion rules as they call them with the latest dnd official rules and actually takes it up a notch in really has that differential mechanic between this is just a monster and this is a monster but it's fighting on our side. Did they change the name away from Sidekicks? Oh, sorry. Sidekicks was the official publish. It was Companions when it came out in the um, Unearthed Arcana. Apologies. Yep. Yep. Sidekicks. That's what I meant. The Sidekick system. Sorry. Thank oh, you, okay. Ryu. Yep. I, I agree with you that without the Companion, it would pretty much be useless, but... With the companion, I really like how intertwined 
the companion and the beast heart are. It almost, it almost reminds me of like an Aes Sedai and their warder situation. Yeah, uh, with the, I mean, if you assume the warder is a, a creature rather than yeah. a human. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a decent analogy there, yeah. Yeah, and also unlike most homebrew that we've seen, in solution and honestly some of the stuff that's even come out of the dm's guild adept program i actually don't think i would have a problem with integrating this directly at my table yeah yeah like i said most of the stuff is it's well balanced and looking through the special abilities that the companions get none of them are too crazy and also it's like from the dm's perspective the ferocity system is definitely something that you can take advantage of if you need to put the brakes on mm-hmm. because it, essentially if the creature gets too much ferocity they just become a random antagonist yeah and uh at the same time if someone is paying attention they can do some really neat stuff uh, like one of the things that i liked with the gelatinous cube companion mm-hmm. is at a certain, given certain conditions, the gelatinous cube can actually, like, engulf the caretaker character, but not eat them, so the cube just becomes a moving shield for them. Yeah, it's effectively, uh, you know, in, in a Soviet Russia armor wears you. Yeah. <laughs> Links to Beast Heart and Monstrous Companions can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. The latest studio blog has been released by the D&D studio, and oh boy, did it make some people angry. In brief, the blog outlines all the errata coming not just in the newest print releases, but also to digital marketplaces such as D&D Beyond, where it will be automatically updated. Largely, this just continues Wizards' mission of changing default alignments from evil to typically evil, as well as some updates to spells, such as the recent Silvery Barbs. These changes have been made to Curse of Strahd, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook, Storm King's Thunder, the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, Tales from the Yawning Portal, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, Tomb of Annihilation, and Volo's Guide to Monsters. And it's that final entry on the list, which has a lot of the community up in arms. Indeed, Volo's Guide has seen arguably the biggest amount of changes, firstly by including a new paragraph that says, quote, The law in this chapter represents the perspective of Volo and is mostly limited to the Forgotten Realms. In the realms, and elsewhere in the D&D multiverse, reality is more varied than the idiosyncratic views presented here. DMs can use the material that inspires them and leave the rest, end quote. The errata then proceeds to explain the changes made. For example, the entry for Beholders has had three whole paragraphs removed. Volo's Guide used to say, quote, A Beholder constantly fears for its safety, is wary of any creature that isn't one of its minions, and is aggressive in dealing with perceived threats. It might react favourably towards creatures that humble themselves before it and present themselves as inferiors, but is easily provoked to attack creatures that brag about their accomplishments or claim to be mighty. Such creatures are seen as threats or fools and are dealt with mercilessly. 
each beholder thinks that it is the epitome of its race, and therefore all the other beholders are inferior to it, even though, at the same time, it considers other beholders to be its greatest rivals. A beholder may be willing to cooperate with adventurers who have news about another beholder's lair or activities, and might be non-hostile towards adventurers who praise it for being a perfect example of a beholder. All of that has been cut, and simply replaced with, when you're roleplaying a beholder, the following table contains possible inspiration. They suggest characteristics that a beholder might possess. And the Beholder isn't the only one that's had this treatment. The Giants have been updated to remove the paragraphs about ransoming captives or forcing them into slavery. Gnolls have had the section that begins, They have little variation in personality and outlook, alongside them being an elemental force of death and demon worship removed. Kobolds have had the parts about them being weak and their intelligence level removed, particularly the parts where the text says a kobold isn't clever but isn't as stupid as an orc. The entry on Mind Flayers no longer says Mind Flayers are inhuman monsters that typically exist as part of a collective colony mind. Yuanti have had all references to cannibalism and slavery removed, and Orcs, yeah, okay, they've had a pretty good makeover, removing all of the deviant behaviours, getting rid of everything that's an act of pure evil, and removes the part about, um, forced coupling with other humanoids to spread their seed far and wide. Volo's notes, not mine as well as removing all of the references to their dim-witted nature and their easy manipulation. Now, on the whole, people can agree that a lot of this is changing because of the somewhat problematic history within D&D, particularly the races that are traditionally based on real-life ethnic groups, and whilst there is some complaining that D&D is getting too woke, there's actually been complaints even from what those people would consider to be the woke side. See, whilst they've removed all of the inflammatory language, they haven't actually written anything to replace it. All of the paragraphs of law and information in Volos were then followed by rollable tables of personality traits, whereas now the law is gone and it's just replaced with, when roleplaying a whatever, the following table contains inspiration. A move that many, many people are calling a flimsy excuse to get around actually having to rewrite the law as part of Wizard's quest to move away from racist, insensitive and harmful tropes. But that's not the biggest change to come with this errata. In a move that was actually started by R.A. Salvatore in his more recent Dritz novels, the Drow have received a retcon to their 5th edition canon. Gone are the references to the black polished obsidian skin and all Drow being evil and under the sway of Lolth, with the rare heroic ones being the exceptions that escape their irredeemably evil nature. The new canon for 5th edition Drow is as follows. Quote, as a drow, you are infused with the magic of the Underdark, an underground realm of wonders and horrors rarely seen on the surface above. You are at home in shadows, and thanks to your innate magic, learn to conjure forth both light and darkness. Your kin tend to have stark white hair and grayish skin of many hues. Side note, the grayish skin of many hues is how Dritzt is depicted in recent cover illustrations of R.A. Salvatore's novels. Anyway, continuing on, the cult of the god Lolth, Queen of Spiders, has corrupted some of the oldest drow cities, especially in the worlds of Orth and Toril. Eberron, Kryn, and other realms have escaped the cult's influence, for now. Wherever the cult lurks, drow heroes stand on the front lines of the war against it, seeking to sunder Lolth's web." End quote. The errata then goes on to say that the new text more accurately describes the place of drow in the D&D multiverse and the larger elf family. So, wood elves are elves of the forest, Sea Elves are Elves of the Sea, Shadarkai are Elves of the Shadowfell, and Drow are Elves of the Underdark. 
Like Lennon was saying, all of this errata had people on all sides of the debate up in arms about almost all of it, so much so that it actually caused Ray Winninger, the D&D studio head, to issue a second blog post in which he clarifies the intent of the errata. First, he clarifies that a lot of the hyperbole around the internet simply isn't true. They never said that Beholders and Mind Flayers are no longer evil, and this is true. They removed the lore and changed the alignment to typically, but they didn't go as far as some of the internet have suggested, which was that they made Mind Flayers and Beholders, quote, kid-friendly, unquote. The second point Ray addresses is the reasons for the latest batch of corrections. Going forward, they want the D&D multiverse to have more of a front and center place, and so far, everything has been very Forgotten Realm-centric. As Ray notes, the Orcs of Greyhawk are different from the Orcs of Eberron, and both are different from the Orcs of the Sword Coast. Ray also says that they wanted to remove the paragraphs that may have suggested that all creatures of a given type, such as Mind Flayers and Beholders, share a single stock personality, and goes on to say that they've always said DMs can make memorable adventures and campaigns by having creatures play against expectations. The final point that Ray addresses is alignment, and that they're simply removing alignment from any race that has appeared as a playable race, given that every player character from any given race is unique. He further says that this guidance is only for character creation, and not reflective of any changes to the settings or associated lore, giving the example of most Athasian halflings not fitting the lawful good prescribed alignment. So what does all of this mean for DMs and players? Well, if you relied on table knowledge of how certain signature races in D&D operate, you may want to read the errata and bring yourself up to speed. Obviously, however you want to play around your table is completely valid, so if you want your drow to be black-skinned, you're well within your rights to do so. But if 5th edition canon is important to you and your table, particularly for Forgotten Realms games, then you may need to give all of this a look. Further, new printings of the books going forward will contain all of the new information, or in the case of several of the races just having those paragraphs cut, and you'll find that if you rely on services such as D&D Beyond or Roll20, that those changes, if they haven't already been folded in, will be auto-updating to the latest versions very soon. I believe if my cross-checking was accurate, at least on my access to D&D Beyond, the Volos changes are already live. Yeah, because that was one of the things that they always said about D&D Beyond, was they will use the latest version of whatever the official published stuff is. Which obviously sets it apart from books, because anybody who's got a 5th edition book prior to this point is going to have all of the old information in there. So, has this sort of created a bit of a schism, do you think? Maybe. <laughs> so, well, I mean... Anybody who's been on the internet in the past few days knows that this has created a schism. But while I agree that I feel like they should have rewritten a lot of this instead of simply removing it, if you actually have access to what has been removed, say if you have an older copy of Volos and access to D&D Beyond so you can compare the two, the vast majority of it is literally just personality traits. I think the only exception to that is the Yonti. Yeah, the Yonti have had a pretty hefty revision. But the thing that I've noticed, though, is they have had a hefty revision from Volos, and a lot of their stat blocks have been updated. But Tyranny of Dragons still contains the original Yonti, for want of a better description. The ones in the Tyranny of Dragon, though, are part of a specific cult and uh, are very ingrained in that cult. So right. I can yeah, that's see fair. those I can see those not getting changed. But for player characters, particularly, 
it's best to not ascribe a cookie cutter personality to an entire race. Which I think is something they're going to do all around. Like, for example, in Curse of Strahd, they changed all the language that says all Vishtani exhibit these problematic behaviors. But the Vishtani that get you into Ravenloft are still going to exhibit all of those behaviors. They would just be, you know, that one set of them that is doing this instead of saying all of the Vishtani do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, while I do wish they had reworded a lot of things instead of simply cutting it out, I don't really mind because this takes away any persuasion, I guess, for a player who is creating one of these races to ascribe to what is written about the personalities. Yeah, which I I understand. I do feel, though, that they could have done something a bit better, like... So, I don't have an exact solution, which I think is, you know, the key thing that everybody on the internet has thrown up is, like, people have said they've changed all this stuff, somebody have said they shouldn't do this, and then everybody's like, oh, well, I'd like to hear your suggestion. It's like, it's difficult to nail it exactly, because obviously we're not wizards of the coast, we don't have access to their metrics, or, you know, I don't have a team of sensitivity trainers that will help me through this. But I feel that what they could have done is... Where it's a player option, fine. For character creation, get rid of it. But where those where those races also exist as adversarial pieces, and I'm going to use the term monster in the sense of monster manual, in that, you know, humans exist in the monster manual. They're not saying that humans are that kind of monster. But where they exist in something like Volos, where the whole point of it was, you know, it's effectively monster manual too, right? that for the DM, there needs to be a default or an assumption because the DM needs to look at it and be like, yeah, that's the kind of creature that I want. I want someone who's a megalomaniac. I want someone who is of that mindset and yoink, they are now my antagonist. Play them up however you like, roll on the personalities table, sure. But having a default is helpful for DMs. And that's why I'm not sure why they've got rid of it for the Beholder. Unless a Beholder playable race is somehow coming, which I also don't see. Well, um, so I want to directly come off your comment because it's Mm -hmm. related, but I have an answer to the other thing as well. Um, That was what bothered me about Winninger's address where he said, well, it wasn't an address, it was a blog post, but when he said, DMs can make memorable adventures and campaigns by having creatures play against expectations, which he's right, uh-huh. except it doesn't fit because what you just did is remove all the expectations yes. and say you shouldn't have any, um, right. which like just undercuts his whole point. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that. So I think with some of the changes, so the player race changes we've already said removing the all kobolds are like this all orcs are like this takes the pressure off people who want to create player characters of those races beholders i think a lot of the changes they made were to remove references to their well the old beholder descriptions had a lot of loaded psychological terms included with their descriptions like paranoia insanity stuff like that which are 
considered in the psychological community to be very inaccurate and very harmful terms, which that came up on several panels that I yes. either heard about or was at at PAX. So I can see why they did that. Um, possibly similar for the Mind Flayers. So on the, on the Mind Flayers, just there, my thought was actually, are they just trying to get rid of the word colony? I don't know. See, the Mind Flayers and the Giants changes I don't get. And yeah. it's entirely possible that there are cultural references or cultural significance that I'm completely missing. But I literally do not understand what is what problem is being solved by the changes they made to the Giants and the Mind Flayers lore. Like, I get it with the Orcs. I get it with the Drow. The Beholder I can make a case for. I get it with the player races. I don't understand why the giants and mind flayer changes were necessary the way that they made them. Right. And that's what I was thinking is like, are they just trying to remove the term colony? And in the case of giants, are they trying to remove references to slavery? Because that was the only things that I could see. Now, I will echo your sentiments. I am a you know, straight white male, I may not see what the issue is here. And I'm also not trying to argue against it. I'm not trying to say that just because I don't understand doesn't mean it doesn't need to change or anything like that. I would just, I just wish I could see what they needed to change because as somebody in this position, to me, it just seems like they are in certain specific examples like that, that they are just trying to cut anything that is related without actually necessarily understanding why. But again, I could be I could be wrong on that. And if that is what they're doing, if they're just cutting it without actually considering, then I think that that's actually worse in some ways. Yeah, that's some of the criticism I've seen that might be a little more valid, which is that some of these changes feel more performative than effective. Because, for example, and I'll use this... Um, the changes to the Mind Flayers and the Beholders, I read through the new copy in, uh, Volos, and despite what some of the people on the internet want to claim, Winninger was right. Like, the basic premise of those creatures as a whole hasn't changed. Like, the Beholders are still, they still have mental mindsets that are very atypical when you're looking at it from the perspective of a humanoid, they still don't have entirely logical thought processes. They're still willing to kill or try to enslave a lot of different creatures. Um, and, you know, the Mind Flayers are still doing their thing. You know, nom nom, yummy brains, or would you like mm. to be a slave for a while before I eat your brains? Um, <laughs> Those are your two options, big one. Yeah, that's, I mean... Or you could be a mind flayer. And, you know, that's mm. that's a lot of fun. Um, so they didn't, in my opinion, erase or sort of normalize the basic tropes that make up those species. But, I mean, arguably they might have done that with the orcs and the drow. Yeah, and honestly, with orcs and drow, I can 100% see why they've made the changes that they have. I'm right. I'm a little I'm a little um oh, I don't even know what the word is. 
upset is way too strong a term. I wish they had written other stuff about them, because I think that the more lore we have, the better. Like, you know, it's always fun to learn about fantasy races and to use them in your campaigns, etc. But I get why they made the changes. Yeah, I I also think personally that they shot themselves in the foot with their explanation rather than giving us helpful information. Because they said they were removing problematic language and connotations, which, fine, I think they did a good job in certain cases, but as we've said, some of it seems amorphous for those of us who aren't fully aware of all of the connotations. Mm -hmm. So I think some more specific explanations of why is this bad would have helped um, because then it gets back to sort of the guilt trip thing in my opinion where you're going okay why is this bad well if you don't know then you're part of the problem which is what triggers a lot of the people who start lashing back at this how can I not be part of the problem if you don't tell me what the problem is right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is Again, it goes back to the going against type makes things interesting, but you have to have a type. That's why I don't like the idea that the premise is, oh, we want to highlight that these creatures exist in a multiverse and we don't want to sort of enforce the Forgotten Realms interpretation. It's like, okay, that's fine, except that's what made the other settings interesting. Like, part of right. the reason so many people want to do stuff in Eberron is because so many of the other races are against type. Okay, I didn't think about it that way. I was already uh, pretty much, uh, you know, had, had one leg on both sides of the fence on this one, but I'm I'm starting to pull, pull up one of them a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the whole thing that made orcs in Eberron interesting is they weren't like typical Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk orcs. If there are no typical... Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk Orcs, then they're no longer unique in Eberron, and I feel like that takes away from it. Also, I think it's funny that they used the Drow in Eberron as an example for why they're taking away the sort of pervasive cult of Lolth. Well, not all the Drow are devoted to the cult of Lolth. Like, the Eberron ones don't devote themselves to the cult of Lolth. And in my head, I'm going, no, but all of them are, you know, fiercely devoted to a scorpion god, which, yeah. okay, <laughs> I don't know if that's better, but... <laughs> I mean, they're fiercely devoted to... The, the thing with Eberron, though, is, and this is the thing, the reason that I like it, is that it is a place where culture and identity is more important than race. And that's one thing that's always separated it from the Forgotten Realms, is that you may see a goblin in a city, but he's just a goblin. He won't identify as being a goblin if he's always grown up in Breland. He will be right. Brelish. So, basically to sum up, my problem is more with their explanation than with anything they did. I don't think any of their changes erases the basic yeah, identity of any of the species that exist in D&D. None of them are really bad changes either. They're just not not well fleshed out, I think. Right. Yeah. My issue is that when they tried to explain themselves, they actually made it sound like that's what they were doing. And I think that's what got them in more trouble. <laughs> I think they would have been better off if they just said, hey, have you actually read what we changed? Because... You know, mind flayers still fly around 
eating people's brains and turning them into other mind flayers. So if that's what you were worried about, it's it's still there. Instead, they said, well, no, we're trying to make it sound like, you know, there aren't any specific types of these particular races, which, I mean, that is sort of, in my opinion, if you want to create a fantastical setting, you have to have creatures that are not like typical humans and exhibit standard patterns of behavior that are different from what you would expect humans to do, because that's what makes it a fantasy or science fictional realm, is you have other species that are sapient, that are behaving in ways that are not what humans would consider normal. And if you remove that, it just means, okay, everybody's human, they just look different, which... I mean, that, that's an entirely different debate about whether that's somewhere you'd want to game. But right. to reiterate, they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. They just, in their explanation, make it sound like that's what they were aiming for, in my opinion. Yeah, and to me, part of this when I was reading it through and how they were removing uh, the, the bulk of the lore and saying that it's all about the multiverse, to me it seems like that D&D recently... And I don't think this was the case when 5th edition launched, but it is the case where we are now. Hasn't got a defined setting in 5th edition. Like, they haven't actually ever said The Forgotten Realms is the default setting. But all of the books have been written as if it is. They have occasionally included chapters like, if you're playing on Eberron, then consider doing the orcs like this. This was obviously before the Eberron books came out. But all of the descriptions of every single creature is forgotten realms but it's always been touted as the forgotten realms is not the default setting D&D is generic fantasy land and because they haven't come out and officially said it everything has been written to that standard and now what they're trying to do is to remove it and almost say that the forgotten realms isn't their default setting and that all of these books need to represent this is an orc's stats mechanically and so either what they sort of ideally need to publish is just a collection of stats with no lore, and then all of the lore is in the setting individual books, which means that, like, when you open up the Eberron book, you find out what an Eberron orc is like. When you open up the Forgotten Realms settings guide, you get the Forgotten Realms version of an orc. If they publish a Greyhawk setting guide, you get the Greyhawk version of an orc. But then it means that the core products don't have any default lore for you to go off of if you are just trying to do you know, generic fantasy land. So I think that whilst they do need to make this distinction that, you know, the multiverse exists, and I'm glad that they're acknowledging that, I think that they're doing that in a sort of way where they're also trying to say, but the Forgotten Realms has never been the default, and it has by the fact that they haven't ever separated it out and written everything as if it goes into the Forgotten Realms. At the same time, though, I can also see the flip side of that being just selling a book of monster stat blocks with no description isn't really gonna drive anyone or spark the imaginations so i think they've been doing that since the beginning though like there are a lot of cases where they've just been particularly with the forgotten realms as the default setting but with a lot of other things they've just been doing hey we're doing this and all you people who know what this is from because you know what D was like before please don't call us out on it thanks <laughs> um so yeah, that, that's definitely been a thing for a while. 
I mean, I guess that's actually the question. If you were to purchase a monster manual, does it actually need lore if it's not designed for a specific setting? Is there a place for that kind of resource? I think it would work for a collection of sapient creatures designed to be NPCs. Because the problem is, if you don't give lore for Kruthix... Right, okay. Nobody knows what's going on there. Yep. They're like, okay, is this a bug? Is this an alien? Is mm -hmm. this a refugee from Star Trek? Like, what's what's going on here? So you need lore for the weirder stuff. And arguably, you need lore for the weirder sapient stuff. Um, so, like, beholders, mind flayers, basically any aberration, slods, the gith. What is different between a mind flayer than an orc other than one has tentacles on their face if you don't have written lore to separate them? Right. And again, I think this mostly would be limited to races that people could possibly use as characters, giving just a whole collection of stat blocks and then leaving it to the setting guides to say what that particular species culture is would actually work. So I'm going back to the personality thing. To me, lore is all about history and culture and not about specific ways of thinking, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I understand that culture is also kind of a specific way of thinking, but it it's still not static. And having history and some of the culture written into a, a monster book, I feel like is pretty much needed. But ascribing every single member of this species with a specific way of acting and a specific way of thinking, I think is good to take out. Because even if a culture is a certain way, there are always going to be outliers. Yeah, I, I agree. There, there always will be. And some when I was looking at these changes, like so particularly the drow, and I was thinking in relation to Dritz, um, one of the sort of key things about, about Dritz in particular for me was always the fact that he was someone who had to fight against the the nature of the drow but that could easily be explained as culture rather than personality if you see what i mean uh, for the drow yeah. as a whole and i think that's what they did in this case basically they said menzo baranzen is an example of a drow culture where yeah. they are completely devoted to lolth and that's the totalitarian what, state right that's what dritz had to go against not that it was like built into his species. Now, yeah. overcoming like prejudices and stereotypes, that's different to me than saying they're fighting against their core nature. Like, mm -hmm. that's that's not really what, what they have. It's not all instinct. These are these are sapient beings. And in the case of all the stuff that's changed, sentient beings. The yeah. The only counterpoint that I want to bring up, which I'll preface this by saying that so far Wizards of the Coast has not done this, but I feel like with the more alien creatures, it's not necessarily unwarranted to ascribe like a personal a blanket personality to them. And I'm talking like the ones where 
you get so far away from the humanoid trope that they become almost literally alien creatures. Right, yeah. I mean, at that level, we don't have any real-world examples to compare to to say that it's Im- it is impossible for an entire race or an entire species to be thinking and acting the same way or with very minimal deviations from standard as opposed to a higher chance of outliers. That's why initially I was concerned when people were like, oh, they rewrote the Beholders and the Mind Flayers, um, which they didn't. They didn't rewrite anything. Yeah, yeah. they didn't, they didn't oh, really yeah. <laughs> rewrite anything about them. But it's like, I don't necessarily see it as problematic that all of the Beholders are, like, have a warped view of reality and are basically terminal narcissists and don't trust any member of any other species. Or that, um, like, the the next example, which I'm surprised that these guys haven't been hit yet because they have all sorts of problematic elements to them, but the Slod, Mm -hmm. all of them are described as being, again, narcissistic, selfish, will not do anything for anyone unless it directly benefits them or someone stronger than them makes them do it. Which... You know, saying that an entire human culture is like that would be problematic. But the Slod are almost literally alien creatures that are sapient and capable of thinking for themselves. But I personally feel like there is enough difference between them and any rational example of humanity that you can think of that I personally don't see a problem sort of giving them a personality type that applies across the board. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see them get the treatment eventually, and I get the feeling that all of these ones that have been hit with the errata are actually what is going to be reprinted in Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse. So that's probably why things like the the Slad have been missing. And I checked, um, hags are still listed as inhuman monsters. And hags actually have, you know, a real-life basis as well on a particular group of, well, women, basically. Uh, How it got, you know, twisted and taken from witch hunting, etc, etc. So, but they're still listed as that, and so I can see that if they are going to reprint hags and slard and all the other sorts of creatures, then they might change all the language, but that might be the, quote, next evolution, rather than what we're getting immediately, which is why I think for modern canons... Monsters of the Multiverse. I have to clarify that now because Mordenkainen's just used to mean Tomophos, but now it means Monsters of the Multiverse. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they do get some treatment later. Another sort of question off the back of all this, though, is how do you feel about D&D Beyond, Roll20, Digital Marketplaces, etc., having their copy auto-updated? Do you think that there should be a way to opt out of these changes, or do you think that, you know, it's fair game. I think there should be like a list of edits or something. Yeah, I think access to a change log would be warranted, but at the same time, I feel like it's it's really something that is just part of modern society. Like if you're getting a live digital resource, one of the supposed benefits is supposed to be that any changes or updates are automatically included. Yeah. Right. If you want to make sure that 
this is the original version that shall remain immutable from time immemorial and you know all all points going forward then buy the physical copy yeah because that's that is a quote feature of a physical copy is it does not change unless you go at it with some whiteout and a marker but a digital version of something part of again the so-called features is any changes they want to make they happen automatically right and i will say that i believe that 100 percent is a benefit um typos things that have changed between mechanical like a lot of the other changes that they've put in the errata by the way are things like they've removed a lot of um once per day and changed it to once per long rest or things that recharge at dawn now say when you finish a long rest because if you're in the underdark when the hell is dawn right you know that's those sorts of things and i get it and all of that is good to update when they go updating things like the the lore and the canon etc i also feel that that is a good change that that can happen and it needs to what they have never said though is you will agree with all the changes that we want to make and so yeah like you said going forward if you are worried that they may make a change to a monster's alignment or stat block or that they might change a spell um, because, you know, Silvery Barbs got rebalanced because that was a little bit out of whack and that only came out in Strixhaven. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of other changes, for example, if you have a cleric domain of of the light domain, you get the light cantrip, but it used to count against your cantrips known, whereas now it doesn't. That is a change that completely makes sense to me. Um, But yeah, if if you want your clerics to in the rules that you are reading not have that feature make it count towards the cantrips known then yes you need the physical printed copy because that will never change but also bear in mind you are cheating yourself out of actual balance passes etc well now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news let's take a short rest and head into the gnomish workshop and try to come to our senses you are the eventuality of an anomaly in a harmony of mathematical precision it is not unexpected and thus not beyond a measure of control. All right, up you get. Oh. First, why are you here? Second, why did you knock me out? Because I needed you alive. Note the past tense there. You are going to have to keep proving your usefulness from here on. All right, it's been three hours and we need Ostron awake, which she is. I thought you were talking to Rostro. We had a fight. Oh my goodness. What's that even like? Oh, did you break the machine? Do you know how long I worked on that? It's fine. It is possible to have disagreements without resorting to violence, you know. What? I'm just adding another entry to the list of things I was not expecting to hear this morning. What did you even need Rostro for, anyway? Well, I want to have a purple worm eat my players, because that's both classic and fun, but its entry says it has tremor sense and blindsight, but with different ranges. I was trying to figure out the difference, and all Rostro could do is spit back the rule entries to me. Well, that's sort of what I designed it for. Then we got into how does this compare with Dark Vision, and it was still just spitting back rules, and it was a whole thing. Yeah, so working with the differences and the nuance there requires some creativity that I didn't really build into Rostro's make. 
And I appreciate that. People getting too creative usually inspires me to get creative with piles of rocks. Yes, and we'd like to avoid that. But maybe we can help in this case. Let's review what we're starting with, first of all. Creatures in D&D are generally considered to have all the same senses real humans do by default. They can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch with equal ability. In reality, there are countless nuances and variations on that scale. Some creatures can see longer distances and process information faster, a lot of animals have far more sensitive hearing than humans, and almost everything is able to process scents and smells better than most humans. But for the actual rules of D&D, alternate senses are only called out when they move far beyond what the regular senses are able to do. Four discrete senses are possible. Blind sight, dark vision, tremor sense, and true sight. We'll actually start with dark vision as that's the one that comes up the most. The rules as written state a monster with dark vision can see in the dark within a specific radius. The monster can see in dim light within the radius as if it were bright light, and in darkness as if it were dim light. The monster can't discern color in darkness, only shades of gray. I'm so glad we started here because I have a few things that I need to bring up. Dark vision does not mean people can see in the dark just fine. The rules up there say you can see in darkness as if it were dim light. I had to listen to Rostro tell me multiple times that dim light means everything is lightly obscured. Lightly obscured is one of those phrases with actual rules behind it. In this case, it means any time you want to look at something, you've got disadvantage. If you look back at earlier editions, dark vision was either night vision or infrared vision. You're probably going to be able to see corridors and people if they're in front of you and in the open, but details of anything are going to be hard to make out and take extra time to examine. And forget reading, by the way. People who use modern night vision all say reading is no fun that way and requires intense concentration and the ability to tolerate intense eye strain. If you're the DM, it's up to you how much you want to play up the negative effects that persist with dark vision. In reality, it's not going to inhibit things too much unless a lot of critical activities require good sight or perception checks. It does mean filling a dark corridor with hidden creatures and traps is still going to be a nightmare even if the entire party decide the dragonborn, human, and the halfling would guard the door. Particularly if the DM decides that sight is a key component in disabling any traps the party happens to be lucky enough to locate. And yes, it goes without saying, we know that's exactly what you would do. I keep telling you we're on the same wavelength. I also keep telling you you need to find another one because it's creepy. Now we get into the odder forms of exotic sense. We'll start with tremor sense because it's slightly simpler. Again, pulling from the rules, tremor sense is used to, quote, detect and pinpoint the origin of vibrations within a specific radius, provided that the monster and the source of the vibrations are in contact with the same ground or substance. Tremor sense can't be used to detect flying or incorporeal creatures, end quote. Now, before Ostron puts us to sleep, I want to get a rules lawyery argument out of the way. Tremor sense can't detect flying creatures while they are literally flying in the air. Just being able to fly doesn't make you invisible to tremor sense. As soon as that aerocopter touches down on a solid surface, it's pillow stuffing. Thank you for that mental image. However, she's right. Tremor sense's major mechanic is vibration. The part where a lot of issues arise, however, is it's not really specified what actions cause vibrations, at least not in the mechanics of 5th edition. However, if you go back to the crunchier edition 3.5, there's some more clarification of intent. 
In the 3.5 SRD, it stated, quote, The creature must itself be in contact with the ground, and the other creatures must be moving. As long as the other creatures are taking physical actions, including casting spells with somatic components, they are considered moving. They don't have to move from place to place for a creature with Tremorsense to detect them. From a mechanical perspective, that's an important clarification because it limits the vibrations that can be sensed to ones based on movement. Anyone who's taken physics or watched enough submarine movies knows that sound is actually measurable as vibrations, but for the purposes of the D&D rules, that doesn't seem to count as vibration. So you can theoretically hold an entire debate right above a burrowed Kruthik nest and they won't notice, but as soon as someone slams their hand down on the table in frustration, it's game on. Mechanically speaking, all that has to happen to avoid making a vibration is the creature does nothing with their action or move action. But if you want to inject some realism into things, you can have them make a check. If you don't believe that's fair, try sitting or standing somewhere and remaining absolutely still for any length of time. Some people might be pretty good at it, but if you're a fidgeter, you're worm food. Now we come to my least favorite of these, blindsight. The rules here are just oh so helpful. A monster with blindsight can perceive its surroundings without relying on sight within a specific radius. That's it. That's the whole explanation. But never fear, Jeremy Crawford himself stepped in to help. Here's his contribution. Blindsight lets you perceive your surroundings, including environmental phenomena, yet a phenomena that impedes only sight. It doesn't provide cover, doesn't work against blindsight. If I ever meet that man, we are going to have words. Most of his words will probably be things like, Stop it, please, I'll do anything, and oh the pain, make the pain stop. So before relying on torture, we can actually figure out some of the intent behind the rules by looking at 3.5 again. Who said the torture was to get rules clarification? You know, I really miss Ryu when she's not around. Oh, she's not on the side of this argument you think she is. Okay, moving on from that as quickly as possible, the description of Blindsight in 3.5 says, quote, Using non-visual senses, such as sensitivity to vibrations, keen smell, acute hearing, or echolocation, a creature with blindsight maneuvers in fights as well as a sighted creature. Invisibility, darkness, and most kinds of concealment are irrelevant, though the creature must have a line of effect to a creature or object to discern that creature or object. It further clarifies, Blindsight never allows a creature to distinguish colour or visual contrast. A creature cannot read with blindsight. Blinding attacks do not penalise creatures using blindsight. Deafening attacks thwart blindsight if it relies on hearing. Blindsight will work underwater, but not in a vacuum. Again, while that clears up more than the basic entry for 5th edition, it also creates some more questions because of what's left out of the 5th edition rules. None of the monster stat blocks specify how a creature's blindsight actually functions. If you go into the descriptions for some of the monsters, you can get more info. For example, in the entry for the Grell, it says they have keen hearing, and their skin is sensitive to vibrations and electrical fields, allowing them to detect the presence of creatures and objects in their immediate vicinity. However, gelatinous cubes also have blindsight, and there's no indication in the Monster Manual or any other 5th edition resource whether they can smell, sense vibrations, or are attracted to the sound of hair growing on someone's skin. You have to go all the way back to 2nd edition to find a reference to gelatinous cubes sensing vibrations and being attracted to heat. Now again, the intent with 5th edition is to simplify things. 
Mechanically, blindsight only means that at whatever distance the creature's blindsight works, it's impossible to impose the blinded condition on them, and they're still able to see regardless of light level or any level of an object being obscured by the rules. Throwing a blanket over a gelatinous cube does nothing to hide you from it. Also, you could probably say goodbye to the blanket. But of course you have the people, some of them on both sides of the screen, who like their fictional worlds to function beyond the basic rules. I'm one of those people, as long as the ways we go beyond the rules benefit me. For example, the fact that the gelatinous cube hunts by sensing heat is great. To me, it says that you can't really make a stealth check to hide from it unless you're also willing to let your buddy hit you with a ray of frost just beforehand. But of course, that's a difficult road to travel. As anyone that's played D&D with an engineer can tell you, as soon as you allow real-world physics and logic into your games, there will be a lot of things you have to suddenly account for. For example, the other thing most editions say about the gelatinous cube is that your average specimen weighs 50,000 pounds. So all the characters have to do at that point is find a nice rope bridge to run across, and the cube can't follow, even if all the rules as written say it's perfectly capable of moving across it. That's why all rope bridges in my games have a weight tolerance of about 2 pounds. If I can't use it, nobody can. There are numerous other ways that those arguments can devolve as well. For example, if you've got a creature like a bat or a dolphin that relies on echolocation, and you manage to do something that deafens it, does that also remove the blindsight because it worked based on hearing? It's entirely up to you whether you want to delve that deeply into figuring out how different creatures' blindsights function and what can sabotage it. If you're the DM, just make sure you're consistent with it. If you don't let the characters deafen your vampire bats to blind them in a cave, then you can't do it to one of their bat familiars later to prevent them from scouting ahead. But you can, dear. You just have to implement an arguments with the DM or punishable by death policy at the table. True Sight is at least easier to deal with because it's a made-up ability created to deal with made-up abilities. Basically, it just negates anything magical that messes with sight. From the rules, quote, A monster with True Sight can see in normal and magical darkness, see invisible creatures and objects, automatically detect visual illusions, and succeed on saving throws against them and perceive the original form of a shape-changer or a creature that is transformed by magic. Furthermore, the monster can see into the ethereal plane." End quote. Fortunately, this is the one area where all the rules and conditions are pretty well spelled out. Note that True Sight does not make them immune to blindness, it just enhances their sight well beyond normal. At this point, there are no player character races that have tremor sense or blindsight by default, though both of them can be gained if the characters end up grabbing some specific magic items. The way Osron would say to deal with the problem is to take the rules as written very strictly, and where there is confusion like what qualifies as vibration for tremor sense, go back and look at the 3.5 rules. My solution is just don't use monsters with those abilities and make sure they never find any of those magic items. Wow. I mean, that's very clear-cut, but it's very reasonable for you. Good. Because my actual solution is to do what I want and kill anyone who argues. But I've been told that that's mean. Anyway, as the DM, you set the tone for how much you want to deal with any of this. If you want Tremor Sense and Blindsight to be more nuanced with a few different ways to overcome them and more specifics about how they work, that's your call. As we said, though, make sure you're consistent with how you implement all that, or you'll have whiny players at your table. If you're a player, respect what level the DM is working with. If they say that the Beholder can scream at you from across the cavern and not attract the purple worm you've been running from for 20 rounds, that's the way it is. 
The fact that you know 80 decibels of sound is enough to start a lot of things vibrating in the cave isn't relevant unless the DM says it is. Where did you get 80 decibels from? That's about how loud someone shouting is. No, I know that. Why does she? From fighting with Rostro for hours. Keep up, Lightning. Anyway, again, let the DM determine how crunchy the rules are getting and respect that. Or they might decide how crunchy you get when the fireball hits. Okay, uh, are we all happy with the rules now? Happy is overselling it, but I suppose I can live with what I know. Hey, Ostron, do you want to hear about the discussion where Rostro gave me all those decibel measurements? Oh, yeah, I... I don't know how I didn't see... Hey, hey, no, 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 stop, stop. You've had your fun. I had a fight that wasn't fun. That sounds like a you problem. I came in here in the first place because I need Ostron for the scrying pool. Now we're late. It'd be nice if you could doff your cap as well, by the way, because the listeners probably want to listen to Dragon Squeeze more than 12 tips for how to barbecue the barbarian. Hey, who told you about that title? That's on the shortlist for my self-help book. <sighs> what news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, were you at PAX? Why not? How dare you? And what do you think of the Strixhaven books? Are you going to try running Harry Potter and Dragons? Do you like the idea of making new friends and acquiring rivalries? And what's your opinion on the new spells and backgrounds? Are they good additions to the already existing list, or are they overpowered nightmares that need to be kept off of every table? Kicking things off, Rat Queen on Discord writes in and says, Regarding Strixhaven, Ostron mentioned Lev Grossman's Magicians trilogy and I got really excited. That school would be fun to riff off. But I really love the world of Fillory and really felt a sense of loss when I finished the books. Has anyone ever run a campaign set in Fillory? Did the characters die horrible deaths? I want to know. Regarding Pax, I was there, it was amazing. I enjoyed all the panels I went to as well, though sometimes I wasn't sure who the intended audience was us lay people running games, or people who strive to be streamers slash entertainers. But ultimately, all the panels I attended helped me think about how to become a better collaborative storyteller. And a huge shout out to all the Heroes Rise crew who took time out of their busy con to meet up with me and say hi. Them the Minotaur wrote in on Discord to say just shared the Geek Therapeutic site with my wife, who is excited to see that their program is accredited as continuing ed to maintain her counseling license, LPC. Thanks for the share, guys. Great show per usual. Rebel on Discord says, Good show. You weren't kidding about that background noise. There was so much reverb, it sounded like you had recorded the episode inside the hotel bathroom. But it was good to hear you out of the studio, so to speak, so it made a good change. And Phoenix wrote in on Discord to say, I was supposed to be at PAX. I was running Adventures League for TRI, but I tested positive for COVID the Wednesday before it started. Oh well, there's always next year. As for Strixhaven, I like the setting. It has a lot of potential for fun games and role-playing. The backgrounds are much too overpowered. I wonder if they're going to redo the PHB background rules in a new set of Unearthed Arcana. 5.5, anyone? And Chivalry Bean wrote in on Discord. For the first question, he said, Don't hate me, I don't do anything yet still. The second, I don't have any current plans to use the books or run anything like that. And for the third, new spells are fine, but it sounds like I wouldn't be allowing the backgrounds unless I was using the setting, unless everyone used it to stay equal. And a fourth question that we didn't ask, I am Jelly, y'all got to meet Mr. Feng Shui to himself at PAX. Dice Gravy on Discord says, for the first question, unfortunately no, because reasons. Next year, though. For the second question, very excited, I'll be running a Strixhaven campaign sometime in the future. 
Yep, you read that correctly. I will be dusting off the old DM suit and hopping behind the screen. I'll let you know how my pantsless prepping or prepless pantsing goes. And for the third question, I think the backgrounds can have their place in the right group or setting, but should be very much to DM discretion. First thing that I want to address is what Rebel said about us no, recording the episode. No, I wanted to address that. Okay, <laughs> you, you address it. Well, yeah. I was going to say, regarding recording the episode inside the hotel bathroom, part of that episode actually did involve the hotel bathroom, which if you listened to the end, you would know. <laughs> yes, it did. But I was going to say, the, the hotel that we had was, I think we all agreed the correct verb is interesting. Um, yep. It was such a unique layout um, that was genuinely the best that we could do, but we have learned a lesson, and next year, hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, we'll actually be able to record it on the show floor. Maybe from a booth, maybe not. We'll figure that out as we go. Anyway, as for Shiv's number four, uh, yes, whilst uh, Ostron and Ryu were off at a panel, I went and spoke to Atlas Games, the creator of uh, Feng Shui 2, and if anybody knows anything about Shiv, his answer to everything is Feng Shui 2, whether it's relevant or not. So, yeah, you're jelly, but you know what? Come to PAX next year. PAX is fun. Based on Dice Gravy's description of his Strixhaven prep, though, I'm no longer sure I want to participate in his campaign. I mean, the way that Rude. it sounds is pants are optional, which is always a good rule for campaigns. Yeah, except <laughs> we're back to playing in person. <laughs> I know what I said. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> yes, and we also met Rat Queen at PAX. That was pretty awesome. She is, I think, the first patron to have a complete set of the badges that Ray Ray made as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, Marty, if you're listening to this, you might have competition for the number one fan spot now. Just saying. Just saying. And Squirrel was at PAX too. Squirrel was at PAX too. Yep. But she was kind of part of our group, so... She, uh, we roped her in as crew. She was roadie in the end. She was carrying the microphones and everything, so... Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I, I'm glad that a lot of people do agree about the backgrounds being a little bit OP. Oh, and Phoenix said 5.5, anyone? They did announce the next evolution of D&D. They're not officially calling it 5.5, which is why we keep using the term next evolution on the show, because that's how they've referred to it. They could potentially redo the backgrounds. I haven't seen a survey to that effect yet, I don't think. Have you guys? No. I mean, it sounds like the way that Jeremy described it, the backgrounds that they did for Strixhaven were definitely meant as a one-off. Specifically, like he said, to enhance the feel of the The setting setting being in the Magic the Gathering universe. So if they do rearrange all the backgrounds to be similar for the player's handbook in the next evolution, that's going to be... I mean, it would be heading back into fourth edition territory where, you know, the players are just demigods. Level 30 with an armor class of 102. And that's by fifth edition rules. And that brings us to this week's community questions. So what is or was your reaction to the errata wizards put out for Volos? Is the internet rage justified or is it just more gatekeepers doing their thing? Do you think there should be an option to revert to non-updated versions of the digital resources? Or is that what you sign up for when you forego buying physical copies? And are you good looking? Wait, wait, no. Are are you looking good? No, no, wait. Um, are you able to see well? What about in the dark? Do you have table stories when vision failed you? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 193rd entry into our chronicle. Next week, it will be Christmas Day when we go to record the show. So we will be back with our 194th entry on January 5th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? 
Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy. And be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout to save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus occasionally you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gaff Memvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, our dungeon master and adventurers league correspondent, Indigo Spectre, our master of the marketplace, Bloodlake, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Bramwin, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sabi, Rat Queen, and Amber Squirrel Craning. Vince Fep for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefep.bandcamp.com and Low of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, a Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. saying all of the serata had people on all sides of the bit i didn't say that i know i put words in your mouth dragons dice dragon dice wow you my did. two favorite words yeah <laughs> like lennon was saying all of the serata had people on all sides of the debate up in arms about well almost all of it so much so that it actually caused way 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 Rininger, yes no worries. In that case, I'm going to continue to go on this. <laughs> All right. Um, I might I might tag off of something that you say. So. Sure. So to me as well, when I was looking at this, I... I can't really add on to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure if you tried hard, Rhea, I believe in you. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> Obviously, modern canon is just used to mean tomophones. Tom- because modern yes. time... Modern canon... <laughs> In reality, it's not going to inhabit things too much unless it's a lot... Inhibit things. That makes more sense. Yeah, that's why I wrote that. <laughs> You're good at this. If I ever meet that man, we are going to have words. 
Most of his words will probably be things like, stop it, please, I'll do anything, or the pain, make it stop. So, before relying on torture, we um, can figure out... I'm sorry, can I do that again? Just as I finish talking, uh, I I heard a motorcycle in the background. <laughs> it was Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy, dang it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and as we said, no. As we said, though, make sure... Dang it, I just hit my my little... What is this thing? Sound booth. Tony. Yep. Oh. <laughs> I hit my Tony? What? <laughs> pony. You said I hit my little and I said pony. Oh, okay. Right. My little Tony. <laughs> my little Tony. Uh. Them the Minotaur. Damn it, what is wrong with me? That's not how you say that word. Nope. Well, it's how Lennon says it, but it's, you know, he's wrong. Uh, New England, England, <laughs> same place. Them the Minotaur said on Discord, just shared the Greek therapeutic site nope. with my wife. I know, I know his name is geek, Greek, right. but it's yes. Geek Therapeutics. <sighs> Greek Therapeutics probably involves like kebabs and gyros and all sorts of good stuff. Yep, you read that correctly. Darn, darn it. You didn't. It, I didn't. <laughs> nope. I mean, if they do do... Ah, ah. If they... <laughs> Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric. Dang it, it's been a while since I tripped over that one. <laughs> Special thanks well, you to... said his name earlier in the episode. You only get one, <sighs> you only get one correct shot, pronunciation. Yeah. That's per... how it goes. Excellent.